And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 117. Okay, right off the bat, I oh have... God. <laughs> oh, God. No, it's good. It's good. I have one more recommendation. Two recommendations. I can't count. Two recommendations. Once a podcast and... <laughs> what? I heard once upon a time. <laughs> <laughs> once a podcast and one is a TV show. First thing... Without warning, is back for season three, and it's a good one. There are three or four episodes right now. I will warn you, though, it is about the death of a mom slash wife, her kid, and an unborn child. Oh. But it's so good, and I think there was a 48 hours on it. So, I mean, like, it's a really good story. I'm already fuming. I'm already so invested, and I wish I didn't know that it was out already so I could just binge it all, mm-hmm. you know, because it's one of those things, like, I just want to know, mm-hmm. even though there's not going to be an ending to it right now because it's still open, but oh gosh. Anyway, it's so good. The show is on Netflix, and it's called The Reckoning, and it's like psychological thriller kind of thing, and it's got Sam from True Blood, who played Sam. And then it has a guy from a show called Rectify, which was on Sundance. So if y'all haven't seen that, it's really good. But it's one is a serial killer and the other is a cop. And so it's just kind of like cat and mouse. Yeah. But like, I don't know. It's just really good. Donna's recommendations and end. Well, this weekend I watched that movie Wine Country. The old one? Well, I don't know how old it is. Wait. It's all them going to that place. To wine country. Yes, but to the thing, yes, it is old. Is it? Okay. Well, you know, I am (laughs) behind the times. Anyway, it to me was like a middle-aged bridesmaids. Like it was funny, you know, like it was, I don't know. It's not as funny as bridesmaids was to me, but it was funny. It's like a a more adult humor. You know what I mean? Yeah, because it's the same person that was in bridesmaids. This motherfucker. (laughs) Good one, Carrie. But I thought it was good. Like, I laughed. It had, I mean, it was predictable, obviously, but it was good. But that's all I've got. Okay, so if you haven't seen it in the, um, like, five years that it's been out. Hold, please. I'm looking this up. (laughs) Bitch, that came out in 2019. No way. Uh Uh-huh. Damn, how did I watch it so fast? I don't know, but it's good. So, some breaking news that happened today on the day that we're recording this, and it pertains to Sarah Turney and Alyssa Turney. I think Carrie's the one who had suggested the podcast called Missing Alyssa, and it's about Alyssa Turney, and she obviously was missing and still is, and her dad was very suspect, and it's just like, oh, Your blood pressure will rise hearing that whole podcast. Well, her sister, Sarah Turney, she has her own podcast called Voices for Justice. And she tweeted about it. And she said that police broke the news today that they are submitting Alyssa's case to the prosecutor's office for charges against Michael Turney. Like, that is so amazing that people that support her podcast the Missing Alyssa podcast and other podcasts like 
crime junkie and everything that has put that in the forefront Mm -hmm. has got them to be like, okay, we can't ignore it anymore. And hopefully justice for Alyssa will be served. When I saw that this morning on CrimeCon's Facebook stories, I was like, oh my God, and like screenshot it and sent it to Donna. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah, she was almost as excited as when we got the new Patreoners. Um, It was a close second. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, Haley G. from Louisiana. Selene C. from Montana. Cassidy W. from Alberta, Canada. Chloe T. from Colorado. Allie R. from Texas. And Serena W. from Louisiana. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. If you want an episode shout out or any of the bonus content that these amazing people are getting, head on over. I thought you were going to say that these amazing people are doing. I was like, okay. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) I think there's like over a hundred and something audio clips. Mm. So either bonus episodes or extra slices. Yeah. That kind of stuff. I think it's like, I mean, it's in the hundreds. Well, if you want all that extra content, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Okay, so my story this week has some twists and turns. And shout out to Michael Arroyo for recommending this one. We love you, boo. So this week, I'm going to do the case of the brothers, Stephen and Carrie Stainer. Ever heard of them? Nope. Okay. The Stainer family is made up of, like I said... Stephen and Carrie, they had three sisters and their parents, Kay and Delbert, who all lived in Merced, California. And Merced, California is right near Yosemite National Park. Carrie was the older brother to Stephen, and by all accounts, they were pretty close. Carrie was quiet, but looked out for his brother Stephen, took care of him. And when they were still in elementary school, a guy by the name of Kenneth Parnell started working at Yosemite Lodge. And this is about two hours away from their house. Well, we don't like him. So Kenneth, who seems to be a bit of like a master manipulator, became friends with this guy named Irvin Murphy. And he convinced Irvin to help him with one of the most horrible things you can do. So picture it. It's December 4th, 1972. Stephen Stainer was seven years old, and he was walking home from school when Kenneth and Irvin pull up beside him and say that they're collecting money for their church. Well, Stephen's like, I don't have any money, but I really think my mom would want to donate some money. And they're like, well, we'll take you home. So... Stephen gets in the car. As they're driving along, Kenneth stops the car, gets out, goes to use a payphone, and when he comes back, he tells Stephen that he had just spoken to Stephen's parents on the phone and that they no longer wanted him. Oh my gosh. So Stephen goes home with Kenneth. No. He had no idea that he was lying to him about his parents. Yeah, gosh. I would cry so hard. I would be devastated. Could you? I mean, because he's seven, you yeah. know? 
Well, when he didn't come home from school, his parents sounded the alarm. Like something's going on. Like he didn't come home from school. Again, he's seven. So they start this huge search for him, searched high and low, and there was literally nothing. They continued to search and continued to search, but eventually the searches had to end because they found no clues and Stephen was just missing. Well, Carrie, being the older brother, was obviously very upset he would just go outside and wish on stars that his brother would come home oh my gosh carrie kind of became a little withdrawn he wasn't as easygoing as he used to be as he got on into high school he even had to wear baseball caps all the time because he had such a nervous tick after his brother was kidnapped that he started pulling his hair out That just breaks my heart because you know he's riddled with guilt. With just anxiety. Yeah. But like, I, you know he feels guilty and there's no fault of his, but he's the older brother, you know? Right. Gosh. So Stephen is with Kenneth and Kenneth tells him that he's his father now. And by day, Kenneth is a relatively good father considering the circumstances of you know the whole kidnapping thing but by night he raped steven oh my gosh every single night no so steven is living his life kind of day by day with his new dad for a few years steven just traveled California with Kenneth. Like they weren't really settled anywhere. They just traveled. But then he even goes back to school. But Kenneth tells Stephen his new name is Dennis Parnell. So Stephen is going to school every day and against all odds is actually flourishing in school, which is mind boggling because he's been kidnapped. He was told his parents didn't want him anymore, and he is being repeatedly raped by this man who is also his quasi-new father, but he goes by a different name. You know, like, it's just such a bizarre situation, but somehow, because kids are resilient as fuck, he finds a way to flourish. I just want to say, too, I got a lot of this information about Stephen's abduction from this article by Allie Yang called Stephen and Carrie Stainer, The Tale of Two Brothers Horror and Heroism. Really good. Like, so much detail. It was a great article. In high school, Stephen even had a girlfriend. The girlfriend said that, again, she knew him as Dennis, but she's quoted saying he was spunky. You could see that he wanted to play and be with kids and be normal. And while all this is happening... While Stephen is a freshman in high school, living his life as Dennis, Carrie is a senior in high school, 300 miles away, and he is having it so hard. Not only was he having all this anxiety that was like manifesting with like pulling out his hair and stuff, there was a bit of a, a cloud over him because he was the one whose brother went missing. And so 
I think that he didn't really know how to express himself. He was having some inappropriate behaviors. Like he would expose himself to his sister's friends. And it seemed like he was always wanting to be close to women, but wasn't good at relationships. It was all kind of a sexual type. But yet he was also very much a loner. So their personalities couldn't be more different. And you'd almost expect it to be switched. But I think that some of the problems that Carrie faced were because his parents just emotionally shut down after Stephen went missing and just were not there for the other kids, but especially Carrie. Because his dad would say that his, quote, real son was gone. Oh, my gosh. And but and Kay, the mother, she was so stoic is maybe not the word I want to use, but just like shut off because even her father told her, you don't need to cry about this because that just means now you have fewer kids to worry about feeding. Holy shit. The grandfather also told Kay that she shouldn't cry too because it's going to make her look crazy. And it's like, that's a natural, her child was taken. That is a very natural and normal response. Yes. A fuck you. Her father would hate me because I cry over, um. Well, if you're anything like me, fucking everything right now. Because, uh, since this whole COVID shit happened, I cry at least once a week. Oh, yeah. Same. Okay. So, by this time, Stephen has been missing for seven years. Wow. And the whole time, he is being abused by Kenneth. Well, at this point, Stephen's 14. And Kenneth Parnell is like, you know, he's getting older. I'm not going to be able to control him as much. And he's getting older. It's time for a new boy. Oh, my gosh. So he gets this local kid and pays this kid money to go find him another boy. I am not sure, like, what he told that kid to get him to do this. I don't know if he was like, Go find me a friend for here's ten dollars. I don't I don't know what he told him, but he did. Is he not friends with his Murphy guy? I don't know. I don't know where he went after that. But no matter how it happened, he ends up finding Timothy White walking home from school, and Timothy was five years old. No. Once they kidnap Timothy, obviously he's gonna have a really hard time being away from his parents. He's fucking five years old, right? So, Stephen is seeing all of this. He's still, you know, living with Kenneth and seeing Timothy just be so distraught being away from his family. And he finally, after two weeks, had enough and was like, I got to get this kid out. He cannot live the life that I have lived here. Yeah, gosh. So, on March 1st of 1980, once Kenneth had gone to bed, Stephen and Timothy ran away. And Stephen was trying to get Timothy to like show him where his house was, you know, all that. But it was dark. He couldn't, he went by Timmy, by the way. Timmy couldn't remember where it is, especially in the dark. And so, so Stephen was going to just take him to the police station and be like, here you go. (laughs) Yeah. And then go back to Kenneth's house because he's been there for seven years. Like he doesn't even know his identity anymore. I mean, he's, 
he's Kenneth's kid at this point. Some stuff says this. Some stuff said that they both walked in. But a couple of articles said, like, the police actually saw them both and made him come in, too. And everything kind of broke loose from there. And when the police asked him who he was, he said, I know my first name is Stephen. And that's all he could remember. Oh, my gosh. Heartbreaking. And that ended up being, like, this kind of famous quote about this story. Yeah. Because... Like, it became a book title, all the things. So, once police kind of get a handle on, okay, Stephen missing, okay, holy shit, we know who this is, let's get him to his parents, it was like a whirlwind. And Stephen became this hero because, I mean, he made it through seven years of being tortured and lied about his family and his name changed and all of that and then saved this five-year-old boy because he was like he's not going to live the life i've led yeah and so like i said he becomes this like hero like across the country i mean he's on good morning america now like they i mean everybody's like just like think about how they were when elizabeth smart was that you know oh, what yeah. I mean? it's like it blew up when he was finally reunited with his family he recognized his parents but his siblings had changed so much from growing up over seven years that he didn't even recognize them mm. there's a pretty interesting picture of this press conference outside of their house and you know you've got steven in the front like doing his little interview thing the parents and the sisters all these people are around him. And then you see Carrie in the background, and he's got his baseball cap on because, again, pulled his hair out. And everyone else is smiling and happy, and Carrie is just back there, not, I mean, not like grimacing, but he ain't smiling, you know? And it's like, he just looks so tortured. Well, once they kind of start getting back to some quasi-normal of a life. The brothers are sharing a bedroom. And again, they're four years apart. And Carrie is a little like, because Steven's getting all this publicity. Like I said, he's fucking going on Good Morning America. There's like a Lifetime movie special about him, books, you know, all of this. And Carrie's like, what the fuck? You know, he's a little jealous. And Steven is trying to adjust to this life where he's sharing a room with a brother. This house has rules that his other house didn't have. And, I mean, can you imagine that first night sleeping in a bed at that other house? I mean, like, just, they there was so much going on, you know, but with, for both of them mentally. And, you know, Stephen has said, like, that first year was hectic. He said this on Good Morning America when he went back, like, three years later. He said, that first year was kind of hectic. For seven years, I had been supposedly an only child, and now I had to compete with a brother and three sisters. To make matters worse, you know, there's the whole legal shit now. Of he has to testify against Kenneth Parnell. But the other thing that is so, not the most fucked up thing in this story, but one of the most fucked up things in this story is that Stephen was bullied so bad when he started going back to the high school with his siblings because of the abuse, like saying that he was gay or, you know, just 
bullying him for having sustained abuse from someone else. Like, trust that if he could stop that, he would have never experienced that abuse. And gay or fucking not, it's still fucking rape. Yes. Man, I fucking hate kids. (laughs) (laughs) Just sometimes people can be so fucking shitty. I mean, sometimes people can really rise to the occasion. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, like, that made me so mad when I read about the the bullying that he sustained at school when he survived seven years of fucking torture to come back and some bullshit little sophomore in high school to fucking pick on him because he was raped. Fuck you. Okay, so back to Kenneth going on trial. So Stephen has to testify against him. And... They convict him on kidnapping and false imprisonment. He is sentenced to seven years in prison. Are you kidding me? He serves five. Are you fucking kidding me? He serves less time than he kept Stephen. Yes. What the fuckity fuck? Here's the kicker. After he gets out, he does it again. Yep. Gets him another boy. Finally caught, sent to prison again for like 25 years, and he died in prison in 2008. After Kenneth had been sentenced and even got out of prison, Stephen and Carrie are both just trying to make it through life. Carrie is such a lost soul. He's trying to figure out where he fits in the world. Stephen is trying to kind of deal with this fame, but also very short-lived fame, but he ends up getting married, he had two kids, and when he was 24 years old, in 1989, Stephen was killed in a motorcycle accident. (gasps) No! Yep. Oh my gosh. Yep. So after Stephen's death, I feel like Carrie spirals a little bit more, and then right after that, there was an uncle whom Carrie was very close with and actually lived with, he was shot and killed in their house. So Carrie just, he, he can't keep it together. You know, I mean, bless. I mean, can you imagine his brother that had been kidnapped, who was gone for seven years, came back at 14. And by the time he's 24, 10 years later, dies in a motorcycle crash after he finally got his life back, got married, had two young kids. I think the kids were both below the age of like three. Gosh. And, then he's got this uncle who died. You know, it, he. there's just so much going on. And he told one of his friends, quote, that he felt like jumping in a truck, driving it through the shop, and killing the boss and killing everybody in the office, and then torching the place. And his friend was like, you, you need help. Like, you need to go see somebody. Well, Carrie decided to do his own mental health treatment. And... Went to the woods. Went to Yosemite. That's where he found his peace. He wanted to sunbathe naked and be with nature. He starts working at a place called Cedar Lodge as a maintenance guy. Again, it was like his perfect thing. He could sunbathe naked. He smoked some pot here and there. You know, just just living his best life for once. And then two years after Carrie started working at Cedar Lodge... A lady by the name of Carol Sund 
her daughter, Julie, and their friend, Sylvina Peloso, were all staying at the Cedar Lodge. This was in February of 1999. Carrie goes to the room and tells them there's some plumbing problems, there's a leak, and that he needed to fix it. And when he gets in there, he sexually assaults both girls and then murders all three of them. No. Oh, my gosh. One thing, too, I forgot to say was that Julie's friend that was with them, Silvina Peloso, she was from Argentina and was here as an exchange student. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. So the police had done what's called the largest mounted search in Yosemite at the time. And several weeks after they knew that they were missing, they found the bodies. Carol and Sylvina, so the mom and the friend, were found in the car's trunk. They had a rental car. They were found in the trunk. The bodies had been burned beyond recognition. Dental records had to be used to identify the bodies. And then the police got a note that was like a hand-drawn map that showed where Julie's body was. So the police, of course, start interviewing employees at the lodge. So, of course, they interview Carrie Stainer, but he's not considered a suspect. They're just interviewing all the staff. And everybody in the area is in a huge uproar. I mean, because it's so scary. I mean, it's like, this family was murdered. I mean, hello. Yeah. And so people are being so cautious. And then the FBI announces that, wait, we've got the guys who did this. And they actually arrested people for the for their murders. Oh, my gosh. So everybody's kind of calming down because you're like, okay, the people are in custody. We're good. Except five months later, Joey Armstrong, she was 26 years old. She was a naturalist, which from what I understand, she like taught kids about the park and nature and all the things. And one day she goes missing and her friends report her missing and they can tell from her cabin that there was a struggle and they ended up finding her body about a half a mile away. And when they find her body, she had been decapitated and her head was found like several feet away in water. Oh my gosh. So the police, of course, canvassed the area and they find a witness. The witness said that they found this blue vehicle that they actually traced back to Carrie Stainer. And police were like, wait, are these related? They finally find Carrie Stainer, and he was, like, at a nudist colony, away, like, living his best life when they bring him in for questioning. And I found this really good article about and by Jeffrey Rennick, and he is the FBI agent that interviewed Carrie Stainer. And it's pretty cool. It's like an excerpt from his book where he talks about this and some other cases, and it's called In the Name of Children and FBI Agents' Relentless Pursuit of the Nation's Worst Predators. So when they started interviewing him, Carrie actually confesses 
he says that he did kill Joey. And, oh, by the way, he also killed Carol and Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso. So at first in the interview, you know, they're kind of playing the cat and mouse. You know, you've seen detective shows. And Carrie is starting to warm up to him. And he says, look, I'll give you everything you need about this case. But I got some conditions. I got some things I want. So Jeffrey's like, here we fucking go. Okay, what you want? And he says, like, without saying what he wants, he says what he wants. He says, quote, I'd like to see pictures of little girls. And Jeffrey's like, child pornography? What the fuck? Yeah. And so, again, like, Jeffrey points out, like, he wouldn't say Mm -hmm. child pornography. He'd say, you know, pictures and videos of little girls. Like, and how he didn't want, like just some like still images he wanted like videos and just all this stuff and he was like i mean i know y'all have it stashed somewhere like that they've like confiscated from other cases kind of thing and jeffrey's like okay i gotta leave this room for a minute because i'm about to lose my shit and so he just says like that's above my pay grade kind of thing i'll fly it up the flagpole see what happens so he's like okay He gets his partner to come back in the room with him because he's like, I need some help. Like, this is, you know, this guy, he's asking for fucking child pornography. Like, are you kidding me with this? So when they come back, you know, again, they're playing to his ego. He's like, hey, do you mind if he sits in with us? You know, yada, yada. They give him food because they're like, they're trying to buy some time too, just to be like, whatever. So they have lunch with him. They sit in there and eat with him. They have pizza. And it's like, they say you can almost see it like, setting in like no this is really it kind of thing because he starts saying things like this is going to be my last pizza you know i never got to see star wars like you can see him starting to like wait a minute you know so jeffrey's encouraging carrie like yes but you're doing the right thing because you know all in all for the most part he does have a good side to him he's he's fucking evil as shit But, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for the families, for your family, you know, all of that kind of played it. And, you know, he's starting to get some more information from him. And, and, you know, Carrie asked for some stuff like he wants a specific prison and he wants, there was a, I think it was Joey's family that had like a $25,000 reward. Like he wanted her family to give that to his family. Uh, no. (laughs) But... He also started airing some dirty laundry. So, Carrie says that he first started having fantasies of hurting women and young girls at the age of six or seven. Oh, gosh. Yes. So, before his brother got... Exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And that, like... He would imagine there was this girl that lived in the neighborhood. Like, he would imagine trapping her in this underground bunker, like, when he was eight years old. And so, of course, it just grew and grew and grew. And so, part of why he had such a hard time with Stephen's abduction was because he blamed himself. He felt like it was like karma or retribution for his fantasies 
caused Stephen's kidnapping. And so that's why he had such a hard time. I mean, other than the fact his fucking brother was kidnapped and, you know, was tortured for seven years. But he he really did feel guilt and responsibility for that. Well, see, I was on to something, just mm-hmm. had no idea why. Exactly. Well, apparently, before Stephen was even kidnapped, Carrie, by the age 11, was actually being sexually assaulted by an uncle. I wonder if it was an uncle who got shot. I don't know. But here's the thing. What's the saying about shaking a family tree and the rotten apples fall or something like that? What's that saying? Don't shake a family tree. Skeletons fall. I don't know. I made all that up. Anyway, don't shake a family tree. Because what they found out was not only had the uncle been sexually assaulting Carrie, there was sexual abuse going back five generations. Holy shit. Yes. His dad, Delbert, was forced to do therapy because he molested his own daughters. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. So, hell, even if Stephen had stayed there, not saying it was better that he got abducted, Mm -hmm. but even if he had stayed there. Who knows? Yeah, like it was a bad situation in there. Mm -hmm. And one of the daughters is who Carrie started peeping on and... And do it having, like, inappropriate touching with her when she was 10. Oh, my gosh. And then one of their cousins said that Carrie had spied on her and her sisters and a neighbor and, like, would hide under their beds and videotape them, go into the bathroom and in their bedroom. Oh, if anyone videotapes me going to the bathroom, I'm sorry for you. You're gonna need additional counseling from the counseling you already need from spying on somebody in the bathroom. You're gonna need you're gonna be scarred for life, buddy. Mm-hmm. Well, also, um, you'll run out of space because I will sit there and TikTok until my feet fall asleep. <laughs> I mean, if you're not TikToking on the toilet until your feet fall asleep, are you really living? I don't think so. So they had psychiatrists evaluate him on the defense team, on the prosecution. All in all, he was found guilty and is currently serving on death row. Wow. Yes. That is the twist and turn and it just keeps getting worse story of the Stainer family. Okay, so I thought you were going to say that Carrie went to that place and he like ended up saving someone and like felt vindicated. Yeah, no. You know, like, and then he lived a good life because he felt like, you know, okay, I saved someone and in turn saved my brother. No, uh uh. And the brother dying at such a young age in a motorcycle accident is like one of life's fucking cruelties. Yes. He survived so much, finally got married, not finally, but you know, got married, had kids. Lived his dream. Had a real family. Yes. That didn't fucking abuse people. And allegedly, I guess. I mean, we do know that his dad really was sentenced to counseling for abuse on the girls. But, and that was all taken away. He was barely out longer. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
He was held for seven years and was only released, for lack of a better word, for 10 before he died. Like, what a fucking shame. Yeah. Crazy. Like, this story has, it's so much. I know. I I was holding my breath. Thank you so much, Michael, for recommending that. I mean, thank you, but also, I hate you. (laughs) Because, like, literally was holding my breath. Yeah, I think I watched, I do know that there was a 2020 about this, but when I was, like, researching it, when I got to the part about him dying on the motorcycle accident, I was like, oh, I do know this story. Because that, that information, I remembered nothing else other than, like, this tortured soul who finally got out and then, boom, died in a motorcycle accident. You know, like, I remember that from it so i guess i have seen that 2020 and just don't i don't know but i've definitely watched something on this case it's interesting what sticks with you like when we watched the whole 2020 on michael peterson because she was like i really think this what did you say i was like i think i've seen this before maybe not and it was we were watching it live Uh uh-huh it was a two-hour like (laughs) 2020 special or something. Mm-hmm. This was before the podcast because oh, I didn't yeah. know about it. This was, yes. This was like a long time ago. We're watching it and I pause it and I was like, this reminds me of a story of this guy who they said like an eagle killed his wife or something. It was the weirdest thing. And we went, huh, kept playing. <laughs> like I told her all about it. We were like, yeah, oh, interesting, kept playing. And then it was like, and then the owl theory. And I looked at Donna and she was like, we've been watching this damn thing for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like, she literally just told me all about it. <laughs> just the wrong murder bird. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, this mother bitch. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, God. I have seri- the worst memory. Yes. Seriously. Like a 30 minute pause to tell me the whole story. <laughs> But with an eagle, and then unpause. And next, the owl theory. The last, like, ten minutes of the fucking show. It's like, well. It's like, well, we're finishing it now. Yeah, I was like, well. We can okay. fast forward through commercials now. Like, who watches live TV? We did that dumb. Yes. And we paid for it. Good old Carrie with that memory. Oh, you know what? I don't know, because I can't remember what we're talking about. (laughs) What are we doing? Oh, a podcast. What's your story about? Okay, so I haven't said this word in a while. Rural. No. But the... Conscience. Well, I can't say any of those words. (laughs) I can say this word. (laughs) Well, none of those, but the synchronicity... Oh, Lord. ...of our stories is spooky. Just kidding. I just (laughs) wanted to use that word. But I am covering the Lumber Baron Inn, and your story had an inn in it. Okay. Uh Stretch Armstrong. (laughs) I told you. I just really wanted to use the word. Also, there's some tragic shit that happened in the inn as well. So, again, synchronicity for the win. Also... This was suggested by Nicole Lewis in the Facebook group. So another thing our stories have in common. Okay. Okay. So shit surrounding the story, not the actual story. Cool. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So picture it. Denver, Colorado, 1890. John Moad 
was a Scottish immigrant who was rolling in the dough due to his hard work. Like he immigrated to America in 1873 and was 25 years old. He was a hustler and had his goals and he achieved them. Between 1889 and 1892, his lumber company basically helped transform the city because they built over 200 buildings in Denver. Damn. Yeah, so again, rolling in the dough. He built an 8,500-square-foot mansion for his family of seven. It was him, his wife, and five children. Like, 8,500 square feet in nowadays terms of, like, millionaires and billionaires, it's it's not that huge. Like, people, I mean, fucking Lifestyles of Rich and Famous would have that size of, like, a guest house for their mother-in-law on their property, you know? Yeah. But in fucking 1890, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, it's still huge. Oh, it's still big. It's still, like, five of my house. But, but I mean, like, in the, when you look at million and billionaires now... I mean, they have 60,000 square foot houses, you know? Yeah. We all know with an 8,500 square foot house, I say feet or foot, it's interchangeable. John either had big dick energy or the complete opposite and was overcompensating. Or he had five fucking kids and a lot of money. So here's the space. But I'm liking the big dick energy. Mm Mm-hmm. But either way, he was peacocking with this house for sure. Yeah. I mean, he was like, look at my 200 buildings and my house. Right. And like each room contained all different kinds of wood. Like this room would be the maple room. This one, oak. The next one, cherry. All of the fireplace mantles had expertly handcrafted detailing on them. And every guest room had their own bathroom and phone. Damn. Right. This house was meant to be the biggest, sexiest, most luxurious house in the neighborhood, and it was. They hosted parties on the third floor, and it had a 20-foot pyramid ceiling. Damn. Yeah. Also, could you imagine, like, you being a kid, and your parents are having a party on the third floor, and all you can do is hear these people dancing up ahead of you, and you're like, I'm just trying to sleep. It would probably only be you. Yeah. Everyone else would be like, I want to go to the party. Yeah. No, I'm like, I just want to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, literally you. Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) Said, no what? (laughs) After the Moats, the house was passed through different hands. We do know that they sold it to Hiram Fowler and his family. And he lived there while the location was still, you know, a well-to-do neighborhood. He had made his money from his mining business, which was supposedly kind of shady, swindle dealing on the side kind of thing. But he was also known for his kindness to the neighborhood kids. The ballroom was used every day as children's playroom. And so kids would like go over and play with their kids Because they had, like, a huge dollhouse, like, all the things. And then they also could fly a little plane because it's a 20-foot-tall ceiling in there. Meanwhile, I had spent my life in too much true crime because I automatically go to, he's a pedophile. Right, I know. How I set it up, I did it for you. That bitch. Then, at some point, it was used as a business school. But then the neighborhood was kind of going down, and so, unfortunately... 
Like most of my stories about historic buildings and homes, the mansion fell into disrepair. After being vacant for a while, it was turned into 13 low-rent apartments, but like extremely low-rent. And it was known for housing the quote-unquote underbelly of society, like drug dealers, runaways, known criminals, etc. Mega eye-roll. Right. But it is what it is. You know, like how they say it. You get the picture, though. It's people that these motherfuckers deem as less than. Exactly. We don't. During this time in 1970 is when that horrific tragedy occurred that I mentioned in the beginning. Kara Lee Kenoki, she was a very independent teenager. She left her parents' house at 16 years old and moved to the apartments I just mentioned. She paid $48 per month. Cool. Yeah, and it was like a studio apartment. And it was a hangout spot. Lots of people going in and out, you know, the cool place to be in her apartment, but also they would have like big parties. Yeah, like block parties and stuff like that. Yeah. It said that on October 11th, 1970, Carol Lee had talked to her parents because it was her birthday and she had just turned 17. She had informed them that she was moving out in four days, like out of the low rent apartment. She had found a good job thanks to the help of her dad, and she was returning to school to graduate as well because she dropped out of high school when she left her parents' house. And her dad said in a later interview that they were like, we will lose her if we don't support her in this, Mm -hmm. and we would rather know where she is than her run away. So they let her leave. And, you know, oh, that absolutely. way they were in touch. So it wasn't, you know, like a angry phone call or anything. Like she right. was happy and like he helped her find a job and all of this. Carolee had plans to go to art school after graduating. However, she would never get that opportunity. The next night, Monday, October 12th, 1970, Marianne Weaver, her friend from high school who was now attending a local community college, was supposed to drop by and hang out at like 9 p.m. Well, at 2.30 a.m. the next morning, a friend named John Lechuga, he drove past Carolee's apartment in the middle of the night. Obviously, it's 2.30. And he spotted Marianne's car, so he looked up at the apartment window and it was dark. It struck him as odd, so he parked his car and went to investigate. Because if Marianne was there, again, they should be, like, having a party, doing something. Like, why is the light off? Yeah. And honestly, I think that's why he drove by her house, you know, to be like... But what they got going uh on. Uh-huh, exactly. When he approached the front door, he found it ajar. So now he was really on high alert. His spidey senses were tingling, And so he flipped on the light switch, and that's when he saw his friend Marianne laying on Carolee's bed. Her arms were crossed over her chest and a bullet hole in the middle of her forehead. Oh, shit. She was only 18 years old. Oh, baby. Then John spotted another arm sticking out from under the bed, and Carolee had been stripped, raped, strangled, and stuffed under the bed. Oh, God. One article said that she was stuffed under the bed like throwaway luggage. God. I was like, oh, my God. 
That's so freaking sad. John ran from the house and used a phone from an all-night diner. And he said, there's something awful. There's two dead girls there. And so police went, investigated, and spent months interviewing neighbors and friends of the victims. But it was hard to narrow down suspects because there were always so many people in and out of the whole apartment building. Mm -hmm. And even the renters were, quote-unquote, sketchy. So they would either, you know, be there one day, move out the next. Like, you know, it was never just like, oh, Bob lives there and he's been there for four years and whatever, you know. But even if they had lived there for a while, if they were doing something... Like, if they were selling drugs or something like that, they're not going to be as open because they're hiding. They're protecting themselves. Yeah. And that's just an example. I mean. Yeah. Well, and at this time, people were more transient and often just crashed on friends' couches and then left the next day and on to the next. You know, like, it was just that Mm -hmm. type of time. The police had one guy who confessed to the crime, but his story didn't fit or anything They thought he might just, like, want the publicity, like, he might have a mental illness, whatever. So, unfortunately, the police never uncovered a murder weapon or a motive. The police think that Marianne walked in on what was happening to Kara Lee and was basically collateral damage. They said that when you pose somebody the way that she was laid out, it means, like, I didn't mean to kill you. You just happened to witness this, and I can't have a witness. That's totally what I thought happened. Like, whoever did it when she got there at 930, like she was supposed to, came in on them. Yeah. Well, and it also stated that there were signs that Carolee struggled with her attacker and tried to protect herself. By 1990, the city had condemned the building because it was in such terrible condition. However, Walter and Julie Keller saved this historic mansion, and they began restoring it in 1991. It's fully restored today. It's a beautiful historic inn, and it has like a whole garden area that it's known for. And it's been called one of Denver's most beautiful examples of Queen Anne architecture, So they did a great job. However, you just can't slap on some paint, replace some floorboards, etc. It doesn't mean you can fully rid the history, good or bad, from a place. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they have some residents who never left. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So this inn has made the cover of the Haunted Times magazine. And Ghost Hunter University has held several seminars there, too. And, of course, countless investigations by different teams. Guests and staff, they say they often hear footsteps on the staircase, in the hallways upstairs. And, of course, there's cold spots and orbs like normal hauntings that we hear about. Also, guests have been known to take photos during their visit. They look fine, you know. And then later, something's there. Yeah. The room that the two girls were killed in is now known as the Valentine Suite. And guests of that particular room often feel like they're being followed or hovered over. Strange images have been caught on film. And the face of a young woman will sometimes appear in the mirror. Uh (laughs) And they've been known to whisper in people's ear, but it's you know, comes out as nonsense to us, but it's, you know, 
like they're trying to tell their story. Did we know who killed them? Did they ever? No, they never found anything about it. It's still open. And the fact that the murders were never solved might be the reasons why their spirits are still there. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering why in that room do they feel like they're being watched versus, like, filling the women. You know what I mean? Like, almost like whoever did it is still, like, stalking mm-hmm. that room, you know? Well, thank you for the segue. Oh, God. It's a perfect segue, but let me let me drive like me and just say that there is a black cat ghost that has been seen in that room as well. But they didn't have a cat or anything like that. It's just been a random thing. But back to the segue. There's a book called Ghost Box, Voices from Spirits, Extraterrestrials, Shadow People, and Other Astral Beings by Chris and Paulette Moon. And they had many experiences and were the ones who held the Ghost Hunter University seminar things there. Well, in the book, they described this one session that they had in the Valentine Suite with the Ghost Box, where it was like a group of people watching and participating by asking questions So there were like several sessions over a course of a couple of days. Well, on this particular day, the answers from the ghost box were darker than before. Someone in the room asked, are you the one who killed them? And then a male's voice clearly answered, yes. Like a fucking snake. Exactly. They said he held it out like a snake, which made it sound sinister. Then someone asked how he died, and he replied quickly, like, no hesitation, AIDS. And Chris wrote in the book, throughout that night, Carolee and Marion both spoke with their killer and didn't seem intimidated by him at all. And it was almost like a verbal battle between the three of them. Hmm. Also, Chris wrote that people who attended the session had nightmares, some had bruises on their arms, And three women actually stayed in the room that night or like right after. And one of them woke up screaming, let me go. Hmm. So like just, you know. Yeah. It had some like negative, dark energy at that time. Mm -mm. I have crazy enough dreams. I don't need somebody in my dream to fucking pretend to be holding me down. (laughs) There is a 2003 article in the Denver Post where the killers who restored the inn, Mm -hmm. they were interviewed and... Their six-year-old son, John, said that he shares his bedroom with the spirit that he calls Nicey-Nice Ghost because every morning the ghost says hello. He said that the ghost is a boy, he thinks, like a teenage boy, and he looks kind of gray, and he said that he had orange eyes and a yellow nose. Hmm? Yeah, so I don't know about that. Like, I don't know if it's different... Energy, like, I don't know. And the kid's sick, so. Yeah. I don't know. It would be very interesting, because you said 2003. Be interesting to see, does he still remember that? True. Walter, the dad, he recalls one night that he was up late in 1993 cutting shower tiles when he felt an eerie presence. He was crouched just between the honeymoon suite and the Valentine suite, which, again, is where the girls were murdered. He said that the house was quiet, but something just bothered him. It felt like someone was standing over him just watching, but every time he looked over his shoulder, no one was there. And then the presence just vanished in like a cold gust of wind. 
And he said, like, instantly, like, all of his hair, you know, on his neck rose. Like, it was just crazy, the feeling that he had there. Even Walter's wife had an experience with one of the female ghosts. She stayed up to wait for guests to arrive late. So she would just sit there and read while she waited. Well, suddenly she heard someone coming downstairs. So she put her book down, stood up and turned around to greet the guest, offer them assistance, whatever. Well, surprise, surprise, no one was there. But she could see the wood move, like dip down like someone was walking down the stairs. Once the mother of a bride was arranging floral centerpieces in the inn's banquet hall, and out of the corner of her eye, she saw a young woman in a blue flapper dress, and she was just sitting on the window bench, and she had a glass of champagne in her hand. So the mom, you know, kind of stopped what she was doing, turned and walked to say, like, hey, who are you? You know, like, whatever. But she felt a cool blast of air and no one was there. So she immediately turned, ran down the stairs, and she was screaming at the top of her lungs. Damn. Another experience with the flapper is when a staff member was taking down the chairs after a play performance and he heard the sound of something moving in the back of the ballroom. He looked up and he saw a woman in the back of the ballroom, like walking through quickly. And he thought it was his wife. So he went down to see like, why were you up in the ballroom? Like, did you need me? Like what's going on? And he found her down in the kitchen and she was like, I haven't been upstairs. I've been doing this, like whatever, because they were the only two left in the mansion and they were shutting it down. Like, why would she go up there? Like they're trying to get this shit done, you know? Also other people report smelling women's powder I feel personally attacked. <laughs> you should. <laughs> There's a woman named Dee Chandler, and she is a paranormal investigator, and she co-founded the Mile High Paranormal Society. Well, she was standing alone in the banquet hall, and she experienced someone who was invisible to the naked eye whisper in her ear. And she was also with a group of people in the kitchen when the refrigerator just started to shift back and forth suddenly, like, with no one standing beside it. That I feel like if, like, the, like, energy of the ghosts and all that, they have to have, like, a certain amount of energy to do things. If that's all true, like, how much energy would it take to move a fucking refrigerator? Well, could be a fucking clumsy ghost like you. It could be, like, a kitchen worker and it's doing its little thing. Be like, oops, sorry, oops, sorry. That would be you. True. Also, one time while she was in one of the guest's bathrooms, Dee said that she sensed a presence in there with her. And so she snapped a picture in a mirror and it hung eight feet off the floor and there was a woman's reflection in it. And she said that it looked like Marianne Weaver. Hmm. And eight feet off the ground, that's really tall. Yeah. And I forgot to say this back about the girls, but Marianne is the one who is seen the most out of the two. People have witnessed another spirit, and it's a woman in a Victorian dress, and her hair is pulled up into a tight bun. And basically, she has a resting bitch face because they say that she always has her arms crossed with a disapproving look on her face. I'm like, call her out, fuck. She can be seen on the stairwell, and some also claim it's her shadow that you see in a mirror above the fireplace in the front parlor. 
there's a protective male spirit referred to as the general. And you can sense his presence by the smell of tobacco smoke. Okay. And he usually stands on the second story landing, kind of guarding that entrance. There's an African-American woman who is believed to have been a maid who died in the house. And she's dressed in a uniform from an earlier era. And she's been seen doing chores. There's another male apparition. And he's either thought to be a male servant of a higher standing or maybe a teacher from the business school. And he's made himself visible before, but he's often heard just talking in various empty rooms. And in that article where Walter and his family were interviewed, he was asked about his feelings with sharing the inn with so many spirits. And he answered, what's fun is even when we're alone, we never feel alone. So true. And, you know, I feel like, like you said, that's so true because of sinister sightings when people say that they move from the house or the spirit moves on or whatever, like they do miss that comfort. It becomes a comfort for them. And that's all I have about the Lumber Baron Inn. So really none of them are that like malicious. Right. I mean, except for that one spirit that it probably is who killed him. Yeah. And, but it's only really come through a couple of times, you know, like some people have felt it where they're psychics or something like that. They've felt a negative presence in that room at just certain points. And then it came through on this ghost box thing, but it's not some spirit that is there at all times. Right. But for the most part, they're benevolent spirits that reside there. Well, let's go. I mean, hell yeah. If we're going there, though, we're also traveling a little bit outside of there and going to the Stanley Hotel because that's also in Colorado. I just need a road trip to all these places. And someone to drive because I hate driving. Yes. I mean, can we just fly? No, that's a whole fucking road trip. You said a road trip. Okay, but can we get a camper slash, like, RV so that I can pee and we don't have to stop so many times? But we just get Colby to drive it. (laughs) Poor Colby. I know. He had no idea what he signed himself up for when Mm -mm. he met me. I liked that story, though. Well, and it was a lot, even though there was murder and it's unsolved, and stuff, but it was a lot less sad and heavy than your story. Which we needed after that. Yeah. Whew, that one was heavy. The past few have been really fucking heavy. Yeah. So we definitely needed your lighter story. Again, even though there was tragedy and ghosts. That's so crazy that that's like a lighter story. I know. Well, and dealing with... The current climate, we all need some lighter times. Yeah. Thank y'all so much for listening. Thank you to those who gave us recommendations. Y'all know we love them. So email them to us, message us, put it on the Facebook group, however you want to get it to us, because we welcome these amazing ideas. Y'all continue to stay safe and wash your hands. And remember, 
Creep it real. And and don't don't get scared. scared.